I'm breathless just listening to him. <laughs> and I just uh, also noticed I, I walked up here slowly, so we're ready to go. We're ready to go in part three, the story of reality, Jesus. We're going to jump right in with a story I'm going to read for you. Leighton Ford, evangelist and brother-in-law of Billy Graham, once met the former boxing champion Muhammad Ali at a hotel in Sydney, Australia. Ford listened as Ali regaled a group of admiring onlookers before Ford introduced himself as Billy Graham's brother-in-law. Ali's face lit up as he said, Oh, Billy! Billy! I love Billy! I went up and saw him at the house at Mount Montreat, and he's signed a book for me. Ford explained what happened next. We got into a very interesting conversation. He was not only very articulate, he was also a very bright man. Of course, earlier in his life, Ali had become a Muslim, but he told me and the onlookers, you know, I have traveled all over the world, and I have seen all these different religions. It seems to me that they all have the same thing. It's kind of like you have a river, and you have a lake, and you have a pond, and you have a stream but they all have water in them, so they are all the same, aren't they? Leighton Ford said, Muhammad, that's very interesting, uh, but suppose you have all of them and suppose they are all polluted. Then you would need a purifier, wouldn't you? You see, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the purifier. And Ali thought about that for a minute and he said, that's good. I'd never thought about it quite like that. Jesus is the purifier. Leighton Ford said, Did you know that the, in the Bible, Jesus is called the second Adam? And Ali said, I didn't know that. Ford said, Yes, you see, there was the first Adam that God made in the first creation. Then the second Adam was Jesus, coming as representative of a new creation, in whom everyone can become new. And he said, Ali said, I've got to think about that. Now, we don't know whether Ali spent much time thinking about Jesus the purifier and Jesus the second Adam and the implications of all that, but we are going to think about that today. We're going to think about Jesus as the second Adam, a little less so, and we're going to think about Jesus as the purifier a little more so. Not that either one of them is less or more, it's who Jesus is, but we're going to look at Jesus the purifier. Today's topic is the story of reality, Jesus, face-to-face -face with the servant Savior. Just in case you are just coming on board with us and you feel like you're coming in the middle of a movie, you're not. It's all standalone messages, but they do build on each other, and we've been in the story of reality for a number of weeks now in different segments, and now in this part three as it relates to Jesus, just a, a quick heads up. In the first message, we talked about seeing Jesus face-to-face. -face. And that seeing Jesus face-to-face, -face, we learned from Paul that if you want to really know God, look into the face of Jesus, where God is displayed best. Now, then we took a look last week at looking into the face of Jesus, the King. Now, today, we're taking a look into the face of Jesus, the servant. These two aspects of who Jesus is was something that the Jews, before Jesus arrived, had completely missed. They never suspected that all of those 
Strange prophecies about the suffering servant could in any way possibly be connected to the prophecies of Isaiah about Jesus being the king. So they were never expecting that one and the same person would be both the suffering servant and the king. We're going to take a look at that, and we're going to focus on what that means for us today. So, point number one. King Jesus is the purifier. Probably the best way to look at how the Jews, with the Old Testament hopes and expectations, had questions about mysteries in their own prophecies. And these questions about the mysteries in their own prophecies didn't go away for them until Jesus, if you accepted Jesus' interpretation of these mysteries. And the best way to get one at one of the questions is actually to go not to a Jew, but to an Ethiopian official who had come to worship in Jerusalem. He was a eunuch because he was an official to the, king, to the queen. I won't explain eunuch, you'll have to look it up, a mixed audience and all of that. Um, and he is on his way back from worshiping in the temple, heading back to Ethiopia. He's in a chariot. He is uh, handling very precious things. In fact, to have an Isaiah scroll, which he did, would have been very costly. It's possible he even bought the Isaiah scroll on this particular trip to bring back to the kingdom of the Ethiopians, perhaps by request, and maybe he had enough money on his own. All we know is he was reading the Isaiah scroll while driving in a chariot. What? Scrolling and texting and reading while driving? Don't try this alone. Unless you have trained horses and a chariot on an empty road in the desert. Now, there's quite possibly a driver as well as he's sitting in the chariot reading from the scroll. We're going to pick up right while he's reading, and we're going to pick up how he is reading out of Isaiah 53 in Acts 8. Now, this is the New Testament, and uh, if you want to read the whole story, uh, Philip had been hearing from the Spirit and doing all kinds of amazing things, and the Spirit told Philip he needed to go right away to this particular empty desert road, and he does, and he shows up in God's timing precisely to hear this guy coming along the road and reading out of Isaiah. Here's what we read. Acts 8, 32. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. You need to understand that Isaiah 53 is like the Mount Everest of all the prophecies about Jesus. It is like if you didn't know it and you're reading Isaiah 53 and you're reading it all the way through, you'd think it's a New Testament document 
that's describing the crucifixion and the meaning of the crucifixion and what it's all about. And that's what you think based on knowing what the crucifixion is all about. The Ethiopian, of course, had no idea that this had taken place or that this is what it's about. He's just reading the Isaiah scroll. Philip, who has already uh, known about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and known about Jesus' interpretation of Isaiah, which we're going to get into, Jesus was the first one to ever connect the Isaiah prophecies, the stream of prophecies about the suffering servant with the stream of prophecies about becoming Christ, the glorious king. No time before had any Jew ever connected these two streams. Now, if you ever want to read the four different sections in Isaiah on the suffering servant, they're listed for you on question two on the flip side of your outline in the talk it over section, the small group study guide. If you want to take a look in your uh, digital outline, you scroll to the bottom and look at question two, and those four sections of Isaiah would be well worth your read. We're going to take a look at a little bit more from Isaiah 53 in a moment. Jesus was the first to interpret his own life as a fulfillment of both of these streams. We're going to take a look now how he interprets his own life as a fulfillment of the suffering servant stream of prophecy. Okay? Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think the disciples listening to this probably went, huh? <laughs> It's like they knew that they were acting childish and, and trying to be great in all the wrong ways. And that was clear from how Jesus was approaching them about true greatness. And he's going to talk about the true greatness as he's going to be the greatest of all, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He doesn't really get into that, but he tells specifically why he came. And they all respect and admire him so. And he's saying he came to be servant of all, to give his life as a ransom, which I wonder if the bells went off and they start connecting it to Isaiah 53. My thought is, probably not, not yet. They don't really see this coming yet. It's not until it's all said and done that it starts to fit together for them, okay? But this is what Jesus taught about why he came. Point number one was King Jesus is the purifier. Point number two is King Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. Let's try to make sense of this. King Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. The first person to interpret Isaiah 53, I've already said, correctly was Jesus. Let's dig a little deeper into Isaiah 53. Starting at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, 
he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a very powerful teaching from the Old Testament, by the way, that was translated into Greek 250 B.C., that this scroll is now being read by an Ethiopian. This was long written before Jesus came, explaining all about what Jesus was going to do on the cross. This is amazing. And yet, if you're not really familiar with the story, the initial reaction for people is this is ghastly. What? God is placing on this Jesus the sins of everybody and causing him to have to suffer for the entire world and die this horrible, horrible death. In fact, lately there's been a lot of arguments uh, taught by atheists to undermine our faith, to say, that's abhorrent. I abhor your God. Your God God the Father is a child abuser. And atheists are saying this kind of thing. And if you're not equipped to answer that question, you're kind of, uh, you just called the very central truth of all of Christianity an abhorrent truth. We would never do this to any of our sons. And yet you're worshiping this God that does this to his son? Now, Timothy Keller is an articulate um, lifetime pastor who, who I, I respect, and he's written many, many books, and he answered this uh, rather well, and he gets at the heart of the misunderstanding. To argue the way the atheists are arguing only works if you completely misrepresent and completely misunderstand the very nature of God as Trinity. Follow this argument that comes from Timothy Keller. It comes from his book, Forgive, and it does a good job undermining their argument. Christians do not believe that there are three gods. Rather, there is one God who exists in three persons, but all the fullness of the divine being resides in each. The Father is not the Son, but the Father and the Spirit are in the Son. Therefore, it is wildly inaccurate to say that on the cross the Father abused the Son. The Father would be abusing the Son on the cross if Christ were a third party. But he isn't. There are only two parties at the cross. The God who was wronged and humanity who wronged God. And God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay? Once you understand that, that we're talking about one God, then that whole image of Abuse goes away because together and they're in complete agreement, this is how humanity, who is so polluted by sin, 
has the hope of being purified because Jesus is offering himself as the purifier. Point number one, King Jesus is the purifier. Point number two, King Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. Point number three, King Jesus is the suffering servant savior. The suffering servant savior. If you haven't tracked with how this series is building, you need to understand that we're tracking that Jesus is the one that if we look into his face face to face, just as God spoke into the darkness, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he spoke light into our hearts. How? Because when we looked into the face of Jesus, it was like the light switch goes on and we understand him to be Savior and we know that God loves us that much and then he miraculously turns the light on inside of us in that darkness. He purifies the darkness through what Jesus has done. And once we understand that, it's like the knowledge of God and God's glory goes on for us, okay? So let's just hold that thought as, as it's building. He's not just the king. He is the suffering servant. And when you put those two together, it's all the more glorious when you understand it. So King Jesus is the suffering servant savior. Let's take a look at Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And remember, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit together are reconciling the world to themselves through the cross, accepting what we have done to him, absorbing our sin to take it away and release us to a life. There's an exchange that takes place when you identify with that truth. Yes, Jesus, I would like that. He gets into it more. Next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you see how that works as a purifier? He takes the pollution into himself. He had no sin, but he has what it takes to take that pollution in and take it away, and he does so through this crucifixion in a death, taking our sins away, in a burial, to bury it there and leave it there, and by his victory, when he raises from the dead, even as he predicted repeatedly that he would, that he is able to become our ransom. God who made him, our God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So King Jesus is our purifier and exchange is taking place in this ransom price that he paid. I want to put on the screen a kind of a loaded couple of sentences. Guilt is being exchanged for goodness. What Christ received from us brought him death. What we receive from him brings us life. Jesus invites us to exchange our guilt for his goodness. Now, I'm using a lot of 
quick summarizing statements to explain all that Philip was explaining to this Ethiopian eunuch, but he's explaining it in story form, how Jesus came, how Jesus was the Messiah, how he proved that Jesus is the Messiah, how he did these miracles, and he did this, and he did that, and his kingdom was established, and then he surprised us all when he was crucified. He was crucified for us. He's explaining all of this in story form, the Gospels. If you want to read the story, it's there for us, and then the Ethiopian eunuch who's just taking it all in, he, he's so amazed by the story. This is what we read happens next. In verse 36 of Acts 8, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? <laughs> Nothing. He wants to be baptized. He wants to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's turning to the light. And just as we've been seeing, the purifier is the one who's able to connect us with the light. And you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to understand everything to understand how all of these prophecies work and how all this takes place theologically. It, Helps me to understand it, but you don't have to understand it. I don't understand electricity, but I know how to go to the switch and put it into the position on. And the Ethiopian eunuch, hearing all the stories, didn't understand how it worked exactly. He just, if the guy who says he's going to rise from the dead can rise from the dead, and he did rise from the dead, and he promises to be the purifier and take all this away from me, this guilt, this shame, and give me life, I would like that too. Is there anything that keeps me from that? He turns to the light switch, Jesus. And Philip says, yeah. And he baptizes him right then and there. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Neither do you have to be a theologian to understand all the prophecies of what it means once you are saved by the suffering servant who says, I am going to serve you. Now you serve others. That's not hard to understand. Save people. Exactly. And hurt people hurt people. When your hurts are taken away, you're now released. And loved people love people. We of all people having been served and loved to the degree that we've been served and loved now are filled with the light and filled with the capacity to serve and love because we have been served and loved. Gordon MacDonald shares the following story. At an AA meeting one morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been a Hollywood beautiful person at 21. Now her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting, her hair unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights. I've been arrested, I've been raped, I've been robbed. She's now weeping. I don't know what to do. I sobbed. Don't want sob to be homeless anymore, but sob. I can't stop drinking. Sob. I can't stop 
sob. I can't. Next to Kathy was a rather large woman, Marilyn, sober now for a dozen years. She reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her into a caring embrace and spoke quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. Hear me? All you have to do is keep coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. Save people, serve people. Love people, love people. Purified people become pure in heart. It's not about me. It's not about now. How can I help you? Our next step for today and for this week is to ask ourselves, who might we serve this week? How do we hope to serve them? Next week solves another mystery. How is it possible that a man made others believe that he was God. That's next week. This week, we have seen enough, we know enough to turn to our suffering servant, Savior. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful for your great love willing to endure such pain. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your great love, willing to endure such pain. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful for such great love to be willing to endure such pain. Lord Jesus, Forgive us for the pain that we caused you. Thank you for taking away our shame. Thank you for taking away our guilt. Thank you for taking away our sins. Thank you for releasing your spirit and life and light into our dark being. Thank you for shifting things inside of us even now Help us to put our face in your direction to receive the radiance of your power and your love and your authority and love someone near us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a prayer team to the left of the stage if you need prayer for anything. Thank you for being with us today. See you next week.